while the clouds roll back and the stars fill the night that's when i'm gonna stand up take my people Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we will look at chapters five and six of Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, This section of the book gets us uh, to the end of the Civil War and into the early response uh, by the white South and the planter class to, to emancipation and, and more broadly the concerns of the nation. Um, I think the heart of this, of these chapters is about just kind of what now, like um, we ended chapter four with the general strike, which basically foretells the end of, of slavery. Chapter five sort of continues that uh, story, but really the focus of this section has to be like the question of what comes next, what is after emancipation for the nation, uh, for black Americans, for, um, um, for the nature of freedom in America. And of course, I think it, it's not hard to, s- to see that this is that, that turning point in American history where, where the country went the wrong way, where the country answered these questions uh, more or less wrongly, um, although it was fought out in the Reconstruction. The Reconstruction ended with a rejection of these kind of more liberatory visions of what the country could be. Um, so um, one thing I'm really noticing with Du Bois reading at this time is he he writes in a very serious academic way in the bulk of the chapters. And these two chapters are quite long, I have to say. They're about 40 pages or 50 pages each. They're significant um, works. And he has a lot of quotes so he just integrates the primary sources into the text. He doesn't rely on footnotes. He doesn't do what like a modern historian would do, which is, you know, kind of construct their own narrative and and just dump the sources to the footnotes or, or highlight certain passages. You know, all history writers will use some quotes and sometimes big block quotes, but by and large, they, they reduce that stuff. They, they, they're more... Um, kind of efficient with how they use those. Du Bois is not doing that. He's, I don't know if that's the style of the time. I haven't read enough history from the 1930s to know, but um, again and again, he'll like, he'll set up a main idea and then he'll introduce a writer or a thinker or a perspective on that. And then he'll dump a huge quote. For instance, in September 1862, Lincoln said to a representative of the Chicago Protestants, and then a quote that's like, two whole paragraphs. Now, there is a footnote for it at the end, so he doesn't, like, this this is a way of dismissing with footnotes. It's just he's integrating the documentary history into the book itself. So it almost is a documentary-style historical account, uh, if you appreciate that kind of thing, if you've ever read those kind of accounts where you have an author, an editor, kind of integrating his narrative with... uh, Almost an, it's almost an annotation of a primary source collection on Reconstruction. Um, and I think he's doing this in part because he is 
making such a, uh, a contrarian argument at the time. He's taking on the whole historical profession. So he needs to kind of do this. But at the same time, you've seen him do it before in his PhD dissertation, his historical work. Remember, his PhD is in history. He wrote on um, the slave trade, and he did a similar thing in his slave trade book. So I think this is also just his, his style of writing history. It's not how he writes his activist literature. It's not how Darkwater or uh, The Souls of Black Folk was written. This is maybe just how he writes history. But I also think it's, it's useful for a, a reader in the age before the Internet, you know, before especially black readers who might buy this book but wouldn't have access to all the other books that he's referencing. So Du Bois here, you know, is providing a service to the readers by providing the quotes. So that, for a modern reader, though, it's a bit much. I have to say. Um, at the same time, though, he makes up for this because, like, the chapter's long pages of this type of analysis and presentation of sources. And then he ends every chapter with, like, pure poetry, like some of the, his best writing, um, just amazing, amazing writing that brings tears to your eyes. I mean, it's really hard to read that stuff and not be moved by it. Um, but the chapters themselves are, are kind of boring in this sense. Um, but they do... It would just be a nice reference book almost of sources. It's, um, you know, I still plan to maybe do the Reconstruction volume, but so many of those sources are already integrated into this book. So do you really need to do it? This, this serves as an analysis and a primary source collection at the same time, which I, which I think is, is very useful if, you know, you're not going to have access to these sources. Nowadays, you can, like, look up a lot of primary sources just online, look up quotes, follow, track things down. Or if not, you might have access to a big library. But if you're, a, like, a, a southern black working class guy, you're not going to have a huge library in your home, and you're not going to have a library that maybe even lets you go to. It's Jim Crow years, you know. You might not just have access to these books. So I think what Du Bois here is actually quite essential and quite a useful service. All right, anyways, let's talk about chapter five first. Um, the coming of the Lord. This is about the transition from blacks being from laborers, both in the South and in those so-called contraband camps and with the Union Army, to soldiers, quote, fighting for their own freedom. Um, so he, in a sense, goes from the general strike to the revolution. Again, this is a very much, much a Marxist-informed text. And in Marxist theory at the time, there's a lot of emphasis on general strikes, general strikes being the harbinger of a broader revolution. Um, he doesn't quite say that. He uses this uh, very culturally specific African-American biblical language of the coming of the Lord, um, which fits, I think, his theme. But he's essentially talking about an armed uh, revolution, right? So, of course, as we talked about before, when we did weeks and weeks on the Civil War, um, Lincoln was pushed to emancipation, pushed to the Emancipation Proclamation because it was the only way he could win the war, right? He needed the manpower, he needed the, the resources, and he needed that, you know, he needed to put the pressure on, on the South. He needed to make it clear to the South that slavery is, is done, it's not coming back, and that there's no negotiated peace that doesn't come with the end of slavery. So he needed to make that clear, and he needed to harness that labor and that force. And to do that legally, he had to use emancipation, to do that. Remember, most of the 200,000 black soldiers who fought for the Union were former slaves. They weren't the free blacks of the North, although some of them did serve. That wasn't the majority. It wasn't border state 
slaves either who weren't freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. It was runaway slaves, mostly from the South. So it was a particular class of, of working class people that took up arms and risked their lives and took pretty high casualties. The Du Bois gets into the number that died. And remember now, based on new calculations, we have to kind of multiply all these numbers by, by about 20% now because we now, you know, we used to base our Civil War casualty numbers on deaths, on like official reported deaths, you know, by regiment and state and all that stuff. And that's how we always get the 600,000 or 650,000 number. But as historians now point out, if you actually look at census records later and you look at the evidence of excess deaths, it's probably closer to 800,000 deaths in the Civil War, north and south. Undercounting was particularly high in the south. Um, so we should add to that number to some degree. So, um, you know, the, I forget the numbers. 60,000 or so died in the service of, of the Union Army, many other wounded. So they took particularly high casualties as well, but they were highly motivated by this desire to free their families and, 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 and end the system that oppressed them throughout their lives. Um, so the chapter starts with kind of laying out the arguments about why emancipation had to come, and it gets into things like European diplomacy, um, you know, and the need to, to be on good terms with Europe to prevent them from recognizing the Confederacy. And then the military necessity on the ground, and then the early experiments in mobilizing first black workers and then black soldiers, using them as spies, using them as, uh, you know, as workers in various ways. So that is um, kind of what he lays out over several, uh, several dozen, you know, pages. Uh, he doesn't get. He actually gets into the military history a little bit, highlighting certain units and their struggles in certain battles. Um, he also talks about the tensions, the class tensions that emerge between um, black soldiers and white soldiers, and between like the peace movement people who 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 saw an opening to argue for peace um, once the war became a war for emancipation, because there was the North was racist, right? We can assume. Everyone pretty much in the North was, was racist by our standards at that time, even if they were pro uh, the elimination of slavery. But the idea of dying for emancipation was different than the idea of dying for the nation, dying for union. Lincoln worked really hard to tie these together, and I think fairly successfully in his rhetoric. But, um, you know, the peace movement emerges out of this, this anxiety over what are we fighting over. Now, Du Bois doesn't have much good to say about this movement. Obviously, he calls them just pro-slavery and anti-union, uh, which might be uh, a little harsher than you'd get in interpretations I've seen of, of the peace movement. Of course, you have the New York draft riots as the pinnacle example of this type of, of hostility towards the idea of emancipation in the North. But Du Bois certainly takes that on. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about the battles. Uh, the 54th Massachusetts, of course, is the most famous, but he mentions many others, including uh, those who served as officers. He talks about the pay gap, and he even gets into the question of, of black uh, Confederates. Um, but this is what he what does here is really interesting. He says almost, he almost says here, and I think 
maybe he does more than almost say this, is that the reason Lee surrendered is because the choice either was surrender or arm slaves or Southerners arming slaves. And of course, we know that never really happened. The black Confederates are a myth. Blacks served with their masters sometimes in camp roles as slaves. They sometimes, um, you know, only at the end of the war was it even considered that they should be armed. And then very small numbers of them were. Uh, the idea of mass mobilization of black Southerners for the Confederate cause you know, giving them freedom in exchange for service or something like that was so unthinkable that surrender, which previously had was the unthinkable thing, became easier to stomach. Um, quote, it was not the abolitionists alone who freed the slaves. The abolitionists never had a real majority of the people of the United States back of them. Freedom for the slave was the logical result of a crazy attempt to wage war in the midst of 4 million black slaves and trying the while sublimely to ignore the interests of those slaves in the outcome of the fighting. Yet the slaves had enormous power in their hands. Simply by stopping work, they could threaten the Confederacy with starvation. By walking into the federal camps, they showed to doughty Northerners the easy possibility of using them as workers and as servants, as farmers, as spies, and finally as fighting soldiers. And not only using them thus, but by the same gesture depriving their enemies of their use in just those fields. It was the fugitive slave who made the slaveholders face the alternative of surrender to the North or to the Negroes. It was this plain alternative that brought Lee's sudden surrender. Either the South must make terms with its slaves, free them, and use them to fight the North, and therefore no longer treat them as bondsmen, or they could surrender to the North with the assumption that the North, after the war, must help them to defend slavery as they had before. It was then that abolition came in as a determining factor, and itself was transformed to a new democratic movement. So in the blood and servile war, freedom came to America. The term servile war here, um, of course, is a bit of a reference to the Roman Empire because the, the wars in Sicily, the slave wars in Sicily uh, and the Spartacus uprising are called in Roman historiography the servile wars. Uh, so he's essentially here some doing what he doesn't do in the chapter title is say this was a slave revolt. It was a general strike that turned into a slave revolt and a revolution. Um, so that is uh, what's in the chapter, uh, chapter five. As I said before, like the end of the chapter is where Du Bois no longer needing to present the evidence, no longer needing to overly document himself and, and cover himself and make sure that his arguments are impeachable. He does all that, of course. He's a, he was a brilliant guy. But it's at the end, he's like, okay, now let's take a deep breath and let's think about this. And then he starts to write like he does in The Souls of Black Folk with this beautiful, beautiful prose um, where he meditates on freedom and America and, and, and religion and, and the black mind and the veil and all these kinds of things come out uh, to them. For instance, listen to this. Suppose on some gray day as you plod down Wall Street, you should see God sitting on the treasury steps in his glory and with thunder carves around him. Suppose on Michigan Avenue between the lakes and hills of stone in the midst of hastening automobiles and jostling crowds, suddenly you see living and walking towards you the Christ with sorrow and sunshine in his face. Foolish talk, all of this, you say. Of course, it is that because no American now believes in his religion. Its facts are mere symbolism. Its revelation, vague generalities. Its ethics, a matter of careful balance, gain. But to most of the four million black folk emancipated by the Civil War, God was real. They knew him. They had met him personally in many a wild orgy of religious frenzy or in the black 
stillness of the night, his plan for them was clear, and they were to suffer and be degraded, and then afterwards, by divine elect, raised to manhood and power. And so on January 1st, 1863, he made them free. It was all foolish, bizarre, and tawdry. Gangs of dirty Negroes howling and dancing, poverty-stricken, ignorant laborers mistaking war, destruction, and revolution for the mystery of the free human soul. And yet to these black folks, it was the apocalypse. The magnificent trumpet tones of Hebrew scripture transmuted and oddly changed became a strange new gospel. All that was beauty, all that was love, all that was truth stood on the top of these mad mornings and sang with the stars. A great human sob shrieked in the wind and tossed its tears upon the sea, free, free, free. And it goes on like this. He ends the chapter literally with poetry, with Johann Schiller's Ode to Joy in German. He doesn't bother to translate it. Anyone would probably recognize it from Beethoven's uh, setting of the Ode to Joy in his Ninth Symphony. Um, I don't want to read, I'm kind of tempted to just read this whole thing because it's so good, but he really wants to press this idea that it's, it's kind of both a political revolution um, that changed America suddenly overnight, led by black people themselves as soldiers, but also a, uh, like, a, like a religious moment, a, religious, like a, a moment of religious prophecy being kind of redeemed. Um, and, and a moment of like great confusion and chaos and, and uncertainty about what the future could be, right? It's a very unteleological reading of history, which it almost has to be. Otherwise, you end up with just reading backward. And the next chapter is called Looking Backward. But you end up reading backwards from the Dunning School, from Jim Crow. Of course, he's writing in the context of Jim Crow. So you have to look. Now we can look back from the context of civil rights and maybe see Reconstruction differently. But if you're looking back from the context of white supremacy in the South and the domination of, of the Jim Crow laws and all that, you, and you read it back teleologically, you, you have to read Reconstruction as, as a, kind of a doomed failure, right? And you want to blame that failure on something, you... You blame it on, well, who got power? Well, black people got power, so it must have been them, that, that group that failed. And you end up with kind of a logic to what happens and an inevitability to it. But Du Bois doesn't want to do that. He wants to kind of stir the pot of our minds and say, like, live in this moment when everything is kind of being rethought. And I, and I think it's kind of amazing how he uh, forces us through these, especially this end section of this chapter, to... To think of ourselves in this, this religious, revolutionary, chaotic moment where we, it's not even really defined what's going on. Um, and he does it, does it really well. All we know is something about freedom has been like reborn or remade in America. And then kind of what do we do with that? Well, we go from that optimism and that, that, that emotional high peak to the bleakness of chapter 6, which is called Looking Backward. The subtitle for this chapter is How the Planter, Having Lost the War for Slavery, Sought to Begin Again Where He Left Off in the 1860, Merely Substituting for the Individual Ownership of Slaves, A New State Serfdom of Black Folk. Now, of course, this is born out of that same kind of uncertainty of uh, what's the future going to be? Slavery's over. Well, what, what do we make of that? And of course, people are going to look backwards. And of course, the people who lost their slaves are going to be the most likely to look backwards to when... They, they were in a more secure position as something they want to restore. And they, you know, they have a limited imagination of what um, black people were capable of in the nation. They kind of missed the point of 
of the previous chapter, which they not only read, they experienced it, right? Many of these planters would have like witnessed black soldiers enter their plantations and free their slaves. Um, but they couldn't make sense of that through their worldview, um, their, their racist re- worldview. So you end up with reaction. You basically end up with cope. I, and he, if he had that word, he could have used it here, but I guess he didn't. Uh, in addition to all of this, Du Bois writes, it was said that even if free Negro laborers miraculously turned profitable, Negroes themselves were impossible as free men, neighbors, and citizens. They could not be educated and really civilized. And beyond that, if free educated black citizens and voters could be brought upon the stage, this would be in itself be, be the worst conceivable thing on earth, worse than the shiftless, unprofitable labor, worse than ignorance, worse than crime. It would lead inevitably to the mulatto south in the eventual ruin of all civilization. It's just cope. It's just, uh, you know, try no, you know, it's the only way they can kind of look at the world at this point and, and make sense of it. Um, but everything's changing under their feet. Um, black people have been freed. White people, he, he does spend a lot of time talking about white Southerners uh, taking advantage of this and seeing an opportunity for themselves. Of course, these people get, get, get pinned to scallywags, like the Southern Republicans who support that. But, uh, you know, they, some of them are already seeing the potential of solidarity between whites and blacks. That's the language that Du Bois uses directly when talking about the scallywags, which is, I think is still how we should probably look at it. That's really where his hope is. He doesn't have much hope for the planters ever getting on board multiracial democracy. It would have required the unity of, of poor whites and former slaves to form the interracial democracy. And they get pretty close despite you know all that was set against them in the Reconstruction years. But basically, he, he sets this up, and then he gets to the question like, what are the four possibilities? I don't know if there's possibly more, but he says there's four. One is, um, he kind of builds us off historical examples of, of liberation of slaves. One is essentially equality, right? Um, a free, free black can be equal. And, and these do go back, because you always had the issue of free blacks. So what are they, even in the colonial period? So that's, that's kind of where he's drawing these questions from. With these solutions, they're just like now you're dealing with four million people, not a handful of freed slaves here and there. Um, so one is they're just another at that time colonial subject, but you could say now citizen. They're just just another citizen with equal rights. And he says, well, that idea sort of vanishes. Second was uh, basically if you didn't have the slave trade, and you know eventually Negroes would die out. Eventually, black people would die out. Um, and so the race question would settle itself. Now, there's not much hope that that's going to be a case when you have 4 million uh, black Americans, a significant chunk of the population, a lot of black majorities throughout the South. So this is kind of a delusional idea that maybe could pass the smell test like in the in the revolutionary period when there was, what, 200,000 slaves in America or something? mostly in a handful of states. That's not going to be the case in 1860. Um, Then the third is colonization. Um, Basically, you could free them gradually and then move them to Africa. Um, That 
actually is presented here, and it, I think it was kind of considered the more liberal idea uh, at the time, or at least the middle ground between full equality of rights, which is an idea that's not very popular. It has to be forced upon America through the Civil War and Reconstruction. You know, it's, it's surprising how long colonization remained like a political card that even Lincoln played during the war, holding it up as like, well, emancipation won't be that bad because we still have colonization. But the idea of transporting 4 million people in, to a place they've never known, that they don't want to go to, is, 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 is preposterous, right? It's obviously on its face laughable that this ever could have been done. But it was offered up as a solution because it was there for the political uh, moderates. It's there for kind of the liberals of the time, right? That are anti-slavery, but also racist and, and don't want to share their republic with black people. Um, so Du Bois gives a lot of attention to colonization more than maybe we need to. We've talked about it a lot with the Civil War series. And then final, we, and this is the, the solution that the planters kind of graph gravitate to because they're not supportive of colonization. It's the northern liberals who say colonization is a solution. Here's how Du Bois writes it. Negroes were destined to be perpetual slaves in a new economy which recognized a caste of slave workers. And this caste system might eventually displace the white worker. At any rate, it was destined to widely expansion of the tropics. This was the attitude of the Confederacy. Um, now, of course, slavery's done, though. But how can we save this possibility without having slavery. Well, you just change the word slavery to sharecropper, or you change the word slavery to, to kind of rural peon of some sort, right? Or uh, a debtor farmer or a tenant farmer or something like that. So yes, it changed, but it, these same ideas are being juggled. Uh, and what has to be saved is this idea of equality. That has to be restored. Um, and so that is, is what this chapter is starting to have us think about. Uh, what is going to be the future of the labor system of America? What's going to be the future of these former slaves? The heart of the question of Reconstruction is what's explored in this chapter. Um, and he talks about all sorts of things here, such as violence against former slaves, against inequality in the laws at the state level. You're probably familiar with the black codes. He doesn't say much about them here. But, um, you know, he talks about colonization and Lincoln's approach to colonization and how just there's so much confusion and anxiety about what emancipation is, is going to mean. Um, and some of it's political necessity. I, I kind of sympathize a little bit with Lincoln, who said, who embraced colonization for a while because he can't, he always held his cards kind of close, Right. You know, there's actually evidence in this presented by Du Bois that he was being very wishy-washy on emancipation literally like two days before he signed the preliminary emancipation proclamation. So, you know, he, he had his plan kind of worked out. And, and we talked about this also in the Civil War series, is that he's being a politician. He is, you know, telling people one thing and thinking something else Himself, And I think that's true with Reconstruction, too. I think that's an important point. And I don't know if we'll get to it much in this book, uh, but we should if we talk about the Reconstruction series himself, the, itself and the documents in that other volume. The, the thing with Lincoln is 
he presented that very soft 10% plan. And, you know, and that's been kind of get provided cover for Johnson and some other anti-reconstruction folks who said Lincoln would have pursued a very soft, moderate path to reconstruction. He wouldn't have embraced the radicals. And, and I don't think he would have embraced the radicals entirely, but I don't think he would have been a Johnson. He wouldn't have been, it, there would have been a, a discussion of black rights eventually. He, I'm just not sure how he would have done it. Um, but the fact that he had some public pr- proclamations that said, oh, the 10% plan or whatever, um, is, you know, as long as 10% of people in the state profess loyalty, they can have their government back and, and we'll give voting rights back to most people except generals or whatever. But he also, two days or three days before the Emancipation Proclamation, said, you know, uh, you know, if, if we, you know, if we can win this war without ending slavery, that's, that's, that's jolly. So he's, he's, his public proclamations are not always the most trustworthy, I think. Um, uh, so what else is here? The questions of enforcing emancipation, how to just stop people from being re-enslaved is all discussed here. But the heart of this chapter is how, how the white South in the early years of Reconstruction, in the, early, the first years essentially, um, used the, the kind of the need, the necessity for a labor force. Because, yeah, slaves were freed, but you still needed people to work the fields. You still needed economic reconstruction. You still needed labor to be done, or else the economy of the South would have been devastated even worse than it already was. Um, and then white power holders in the South used things like the black coats to, to try to create this middle ground between slavery and, and freedom. Essentially, it's kind of some kind of debt peonage. Uh, a legal inequality, right? A, sec- a class of second-class citizenship, right? And to some degree, Jim Crow showed how this could be done even with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment on the books. But this is before the 14th and 15th Amendment were passed, right? So there wasn't really a clear status on citizenship or voting rights or anything like, like that. So um, Reconstruction as like especially radical reconstruction comes from a response to this reaction. Um, so I think that's what these two chapters do. Um, they're long, but it's you know it's really well documented. That's that's why I don't want to maybe spend too much more time on it because it is like very very systematic in how he lays out his his evidence for this. Because I think these two chapters are super crudo- critical. In how Du Bois is imagining his his history of Reconstruction, right? You know, obviously you have this Marxist thought of of revolution and reaction, Thermidor almost he doesn't use the term Thermidor, I don't think, but it's not far from the surface. So, anyways, this this chapter just sort of gets us to um, the next two, which I think are uh, maybe we'll have a little bit more to say. About Um, So in the next episode, I'll look at chapters uh, seven and eight of Black Reconstruction in America, Looking Forward, which is really about the the democratic vision uh, to maybe challenge the looking backwards. So dialectic this book is. I kind of like that about it. And then chapter eight, this transubstantiation of a poor white, which is really about Andrew Johnson 
and his uh, the tragedy of that that character. Um, so I think yeah, we'll look at those two chapters in the next next episode. Um, yeah, I, I think we're on we're on pace to maybe do seven. Um, seven episodes. Should we do Price of Disaster? I guess, yeah, I guess we should. So we'll do uh, also the Price of Disaster, which is um, which is also about democracy. Wow, so so dialectic. He's, he seems to be really flipping back and forth between like the reaction and like the more progressive democratic voices in, in Reconstruction. Yeah, so seven, eight, nine next episode. We'll 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 look at a whole hundred pages or so. Just so uh, that way, I think we can get done in. In six episodes, um, which is my my hope. So, anyways, um, that will be it for now. Um, thanks for listening, um, and I'm looking forward to continue this look at Black Reconstruction in America in the next episode. So, I'll see you then. The thanks for listening. So I'm gonna stand up, take my